As I mentioned last week, our podcast episodes here in season seven are going to get smaller, or I should say shorter, by the week because we are officially up and running at lovegoodacademy.com. For those of you who are not yet Love Good patrons, today is the day to subscribe. If you are a patron, today's the day to click on one of the many emails that we've sent you over the last month to get full access to the premier formation platform for any Christian out there who is ready to evangelize our culture of noise. This is the ongoing formation platform platform for modern-day apostles. There's no two ways to say it. Lovegoodacademy.com. And today, obviously, we're on Season 7, Episode 7. We're diving into Principle number 6 in our art of being human, which is work. But as I've mentioned, and as today you'll be reminded a few more times towards the end, uh, these are only introductions. These podcast episodes is just a a skimming of the surface on these principles that we believe are fundamental, not only in living our humanity well, but in ultimately evangelizing our post-Christian culture. So if you're enjoying these principles, if you're enjoying these excerpts that I'm reading from my brand new book, which is called Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise, again, you've got to go to lovegoodacademy.com, subscribe as a patron, you'll get full full access to the formation platform You'll also get an immediate copy of my brand new book in the mail, as well as a Love Good exclusive patron t-shirt. Again, all this can be found at lovegoodacademy.com. When I come back in just a moment, we'll be doing our uh, initial glimpse into this principle, principle number six in the art of being human work. Welcome back, everybody. I think I forgot to mention this in the intro. For those who don't know me, my name is Jimmy Mitchell, and I'm the chief curator here at Love Good, but I'm also the author of this brand new book called Let Beauty Speak, The Art of Being Human in a Culture of Noise. And today on the podcast, we are diving into principle number six, which is also chapter six in this little book. And again, it's a not really a deep dive. The book certainly is. The education platform is certainly a deep dive. But today, we're just going to take a quick glimpse into this principle of work. What does it mean to be sanctified by our work? What does it mean, in fact, for every moment of our day, whether we're out there working, you know, in corporate America, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or a full-time student, how can work not only sanctify us, but bring God glory and even help Him save souls? It's kind of an amazing idea that for me has been percolating for most of the last 15 years, and is hugely inspired by some really key people, uh, namely St. Jose Maria Escrivá and Pope St. John Paul II, as well as St. John Henry Newman. I want to begin with, well, actually where this chapter in Let Beauty Speak ends, which is a quote from St. John Henry Newman, which is pretty famous. It's one that has been quoted thousands, millions of times, I would say, uh, over the last century or so, ever since he first wrote it in 1848. And I'll just read a brief excerpt of it, and it goes like this. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life, but I shall be told it in the next. Somehow I am necessary for his purposes, as necessary in my place as an archangel in his. If indeed I fail, he can raise another, as he can make the stones children of Abraham. Yet I have a part in this great work, 
I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, while not intending it, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. End quote. And he goes on to talk about this unique and unrepeatable role that each of us have to play on planet Earth in our unique and unrepeatable lifetime. Now, I first came across St. John Henry Newman while studying abroad in England. This was back in 2006. I was studying philosophy at the University College London, and the only way to study philosophy at a school as secular as UCL is to make sure that you're only reading the writings of philosophers whose names begin with an ST period. So I did a lot of St. Augustine and a lot of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he wasn't yet canonized, but I was coming across a lot of now St. John Henry Newman. Now, he's arguably the most famous Anglican convert, really, of the 19th century. Imagine Billy Graham, okay, who in many ways you could say is the most famous American evangelist of all time, but certainly in the 20th century, one of the most famous Protestant evangelists across the world. I mean, there are highways named after Billy Graham in the great state of North Carolina. Uh, He's a giant. There are entire movements, mass movements of conversion that many people trace to Billy Graham's earliest crusades back in the 70s. Now, I bring this up because Billy Graham is a bit of an American icon, especially when it comes to Christianity. Well, John Henry Newman was similarly an Anglican icon uh, in his lifetime up until the point where it was legal again to be Catholic. Now, this was in 1850. We have the restoration of the Catholic hierarchy, which basically means it was no longer illegal to be Catholic. Can you imagine that? After the Reformation, after King Henry VIII declared himself head of the church in England, you've got 300 and almost 50 years where becoming Catholic, being Catholic, especially being a Catholic priest, is almost a death sentence. Now, John Henry Newman was alive towards the end of that period of great persecution of Catholics in England, but also alive at the beginning of the restoration of the hierarchy, which is to say that, you know, he had to answer the question, what do I believe about this Roman Catholic Church? It was the obvious elephant in the room for any Anglican in the year 1850, specifically in England. And what's crazy is Newman was a part of what was called the Oxford Movement. So he was already somebody who cared deeply about theology. I mean, he was already a great Anglican preacher, a great Anglican theologian. But when the church suddenly became legal again, in other words, you could practice the Catholic faith without any fear of persecution, Catholic parishes were restored, bishops were coming back, sort of a crazy thing for an American to imagine, but... For Newman, it was sort of a wild and crazy time, and many of his sensibilities were already very what you would call high church, as close to Catholic as you can get. Now, Newman is in many ways an intellectual predecessor to G.K. Chesterton, who's the most obvious intellectual predecessor to uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine this, right? But when Newman probably well into this restoration of the hierarchy, 1850s, 1860s, when he started to show signs of becoming Catholic, it freaked everybody out. And ultimately, he did become Catholic, but much to the chagrin of the Church of England, much to the chagrin of many of his closest friends. I mean, the parallel here is obvious. Imagine Billy Graham 
becoming Catholic a couple of decades before he died. That's what it was like when Newman became Catholic. And not only that, he obviously goes on to become a Catholic priest, a great Catholic theologian, and before he died, he was given the red hat. He became what we call a prince of the church. He was named a cardinal, John Henry Newman. Now, he was beatified about 12 years ago. He was canonized about two years ago. And I really do believe that his writings are some of the best in the English language throughout most of the 19th century. Now, I grew up, not grew up, but certainly by the time I was in college, I was reading his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, which is a bit of a defense of his faith and ultimately his conversion. But all the way down to his most esteemed of sermons back when he was still an Anglican, uh, the most famous, perhaps the parochial and plain sermons. Now, I was living in London in 2006, and I would stumble into all these used bookstores, and I would often find first edition books of John Henry Newman uh, that you couldn't really find anywhere else, and I would spend two or three pounds on them, which is, you know, the equivalent of four or five American dollars. So for a long time, Newman was somebody that I really loved and I really respected, and when Pope Benedict XVI beatified him in 2010, I went out of my way to go to London to be at his beatification. And it was actually during a prayer vigil the night before the beatification that Pope Benedict XVI gathered thousands of young people in Hyde Park for Eucharistic adoration. This was actually, for me, a life-changing night for reasons I won't get to get into on the podcast, but really personal and beautiful stuff was happening in my soul that night. And while sharing this quote of Newman, the one that I shared at the very beginning of this episode, uh, you see this uh, real meditation from Benedict XVI about the, the definite service, the definite work that all of us have that God has given to each of us in our lifetime. And now I'm quoting Pope Benedict XVI. He said, No one who looks realistically at our world today could think that Christians can afford to go on with business as usual, ignoring the profound crisis of faith which has overtaken our society, or simply trusting that the patrimony of values handed down by the Christian centuries will continue to inspire and shape the future of our society. We know that in times of crisis and upheaval, God has raised up great saints and prophets for the renewal of the church and Christian society. We trust in His providence and we pray for His continued guidance. But each of us, in accordance with his or her state of life, is called to work for the advancement of God's kingdom by imbuing temporal life with the values of the gospel. Each of us has a mission. Each of us is called to change the world, to work for a culture of life, a culture forged by love and respect for the dignity of each human person. End quote. So what's crazy is I'm there in Hyde Park, and I'm a couple of years at a seminary, and you know, actually one year, only a year and a few months out of seminary, a few weeks out of a serious relationship, and really uncertain about most areas of my life. But it was almost like a, you know, a, a, a spiritual bomb went off in my heart that weekend. And I realized that the definite service, the definite work that God was calling me to, and that He had been calling me to for many years up until that point, was this ongoing formation of young people this work of evangelization and discipleship with the young church. Now, anybody who knows me can see how that calling has carried me through the last decade of my life. But it's not just a mission, it's also a work, a sacrifice of praise, as it's often called. You read through the Psalms, and 
This is the, the great work of the monks down through the centuries, is to lift up a sacrifice of praise. Now, this is part of why Opus Dei, founded by San Jose Maria Escrivá, chose that Latin phrase, Opus Dei, the work of God. It, it used to only really refer to the work of monks, who in their prayers, in their ora et labora, prayer and work, were lifting up this sacrifice of praise, this work of God, day in and day out, for His greater glory and for their sanctification. Now, one of the things that Jose Maria Escrivá, and especially Opus Dei, has taught many of us is the great dignity of work and the great glory that we can give God in our faithfulness to our day-to-day work. And this can really be traced back to the beginning of creation. I mean, what does God say right there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? He says, "...let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea." and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. He uses the word, of course, dominion, not domination, right? That whether we are students, baristas, lawyers, or again, stay-at-home moms, whatever we find ourselves doing with our lives, we are called to order all things within our sphere of influence towards the greater glory of God. So again, dominion is not domination, but stewardship, right? Transforming what God has entrusted to us into a sacrifice of praise. This is really exciting stuff. It's something that St. John Paul II gets into in his, his encyclical called Laborum Exertions. I'm not going to quote it here, but there's a beautiful quote of that on page 111 in Let Beauty Speak. And it's important for us to remember that work is connected to our vocation, but it's not synonymous with it, right? So, you know, if you're called to married life, to, to having a spouse and, and kids uh, whose souls you're responsible for getting to heaven, work is primarily how you provide for them, right? But even within work, there can be mission. Within work, there can be apostolate. You know, for those who are called to, to priesthood or religious life, obviously uh, your work is much more wrapped up in your vocation and in your apostolate, right? The the work of the Jesuits that I have the privilege of collaborating with every single day here in Tampa, Florida at Jesuit High School uh, is very much uh, a, a work of the Church, a mission of Jesus Himself, which is nothing less than evangelization, which is nothing less than the salvation of souls. But for most of us, especially those working in the world, you know, work is also meant to sanctify us, not just help Jesus save souls. Now, that can happen in very implicit, or I should say subtle ways, right? You can lift up every hour of your work for a soul in need of Jesus. Every hour of your work throughout an an entire workday can actually be an intentional prayer of intercession, which is pretty cool and pretty powerful. That suddenly gives dignity to every single uh, little bit of work that we do. But it's also meant to sanctify us, right? It's, it's through work that we learn the virtues. It's, it's through work that we can actually grow in fortitude, prudence, charity, hope, justice. You know, it's, it's an amazing gift that God gives us that is really meant to provide us the opportunity to give Him, our Creator and our Savior, to give Him glory. This is a little quote from San Jose Maria back in 19. 19- 67. He said this, The doctrine of Holy Scripture, 
which is to do all for the glory of God, is to be found in the very nucleus of the spirit of Opus Dei. It leads you to do your work as perfectly as possible, to love God and mankind by putting love in the little things of everyday life and discovering that divine something which is hidden in small details. The lines of a Castilian poet are especially appropriate here. Write slowly and with a careful hand, for doing things well is more important than doing them. I assure you, my sons and daughters, that when a Christian carries out with love the most insignificant everyday action, that action overflows with the transcendence of God. That is why I have told you repeatedly and hammered away once and again on the idea that the Christian vocation consists of making heroic verse out of the prose of each day. Heaven and earth seem to merge, my sons and daughters, on the horizon, but where they really meet is in your hearts when you sanctify your everyday lives. End quote. So cool to think that every single day our work is an opportunity for heaven and earth to merge. Again, not on the horizon, but in our hearts. By allowing our work to bring out the best in us, by having a great attention to detail, all of that can overflow with transcendence of God. Again, to borrow the phrase here of Jose Maria Escrivá. The reason that work as a principle immediately uh, follows leisure, at least in our art of being human, is because it's really important to remember that we work for the sake of leisure, not the other way around. This is an idea kind of at the heart of uh, Joseph Pieper, a great German philosopher and theologian, but it's so easy to think that we work, and we work, and we work, and that's primarily what our lives are all about, and then when we enter into leisure, let's say, for those of us who work in education, these last couple of weeks of Christmas break have been pretty leisurely for most of us. We think that that's actually just meant to store up our energy so that we can get back to work on Monday morning, get back to school, and then do what we're really made for. But actually, it's the other way around. And this is pretty revolutionary. This is pretty counterintuitive, even for well-formed Christians, to think that actually our work is meant to prepare us to enter into true leisure. And leisure is, again, this conditioning of the soul for reality, this encounter with the true, the good, and the beautiful, which is ultimately God himself. So there's a lot to think about and a lot to personalize with this principle of work. You know, what does it look like for us to be sanctified day in and day out, uh, even in the most ordinary details of our professional lives? You know, what does it look like for us to have this spirit of St. Joseph, you know, turning every task into prayer by simply keeping the Lord Jesus with us? You know, how do we submit our work to our primary vocation? What, what role does discernment play not only in finding God's perfect will for our lives in terms of our vocation, but even in terms of our work, the definite service that we are called to in this life? Um, you know, what does it look like to surrender even our future to God while entering into courageous discernment of the gifts He's given us, but also our limitations and acknowledging uh, His unique and unimpeatable call in our lives? A few book recommendations for those who are really wanting to go deeper. Uh, Created for Greatness by Alexander Havard. Of course, Laborum Exertions, which is an encyclical by St. John Paul II. Getting Work Right by Michael Naughton. That's a fairly new book, only came out a couple of years ago. And then one of my favorites, which is an, a good introduction to Opus Dei, 
It's called Ordinary Work, Extraordinary Grace by Dr. Scott Hahn. So let's ponder this great principle of work. For those who have the book, do the deep dive of reading the entirety of chapter 6 in Let Beauty Speak. Discuss it with family and with friends over the dinner table, over a cup of coffee. And of course, if you're not yet a patron, go to lovegoodacademy.com and subscribe so that you can get the back-end exclusive access to this premier formation platform that obviously Let Beauty Speak is setting the stage for, is creating the, the foundation for, but that is about to expand like you can only imagine right now. We just had Father Ryan Adorjan in town, followed by Dr. Ryan Hanning, both of whom were recording courses for Love Good Academy that are going to release in the spring and in the summer. With those courses will, of course, come new books and therefore new opportunities for being apostles in this post-Christian era that we all find ourselves in. So again, you can find out all these details at lovegoodacademy.com. As always, thank you for tuning in here to the Love Good Podcast. We've only got four principles left in our art of being human, which means we've only got four episodes left in season seven of the Love Good Podcast. And as we get towards the end, I've got a big announcement about the podcast. So just go ahead and hold your breath now, but know that in about a month, uh, a very important announcement about the podcast will be coming your way. Thanks as always for tuning in. Again, this is Jimmy Mitchell with Love Good. God bless you guys. Pray for me and be assured of my prayers for you. Peace.